Hello, and welcome to the Enneagram in a Movie podcast. I'm Mario Sakura, and this is the place where my co-hosts, TJ Dahl and TJ Ingracia, and I discuss movies through the lens of the Enneagram model of personality. If you like the show, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe, and join the conversation on our social media pages. For now, grab some popcorn, sit back, and enjoy the show. You know, guys, it feels like we've done this before. Is it just me? <laughs> we, this episode, uh, are very excited. Uh, number one, we're talking about one of all of our favorite movies, uh, the movie Groundhog Day. But even more important than that, we are being rejoined by our returning champion, uh, Maria Jose Munita, who was um, all fans of the show are familiar with. So, uh, Maria Jose, it's great to have you. How are you doing? Good. Thank you for inviting me back. I'm really excited to be here with the three of you. All right. Great. TJ, TJ, how you doing? And how excited are you to have Maria Jose with us? So excited. I love the idea of fans of the podcast. I think there are <laughs> hordes of people out there. We've, we've, we've got your letters. We responded to the hashtags that have trended. We've brought Maria Jose back. It, it's it's all we ever get, you know, in the subject lines of our of our thousands and thousands of email is more Maria Jose, and I, I've set it up so it goes to a filter so I don't have to see them all. But uh, but yes, due to to popular demand, we do have Maria Jose back. So um, and again, we're talking about the movie Groundhog Day. It feels like you know the. Um, there's been kind of a theme with some of the movies recently that they're movies that uh, have become cultural phenomena, right? Uh, particularly uh, as we did with Shawshank Redemption. Now, this movie was a bit more popular than Shawshank was when it first came out, uh, but not not a hugely popular when it started, but it has gone to take a life of its own. And you know what? I'm not going to get ahead of us. There's a whole lot of things to talk about here. So uh, first of all, I think uh, I forget who exactly picked this movie. I know Maria Jose suggested it, but I don't want to step on you guys. Uh, who wants to share why we picked this movie to talk about? I was probably the first person to mention it as because we started looking at movies with spiritual themes to them. And this is a movie that I took completely at face value when it first came out. I saw this when it was in the theaters. I was in college. I loved it, as did everybody I knew. It never occurred to me that it could be interpreted spiritually. And then a few years ago, I read a book of interviews with comedy writers, one of which was Harold Ramis. And in the intro to the, to the interview with him, it mentioned that Jews, Buddhists, Christians, and Hindus have all championed the movie Groundhog Day as the perfect illustration of some essential element of their spiritual teachings. And then as soon as I started looking at it with that lens, it was like, of course, of course. And how brilliant that it works on two levels simultaneously. Yeah, yeah, good. Uh, and we'll come back to talk about that more, certainly. But um, Rio Jose, you uh, independently suggested this movie when we said, look, we have to respond to viewer demand here or listener demand and bring you back to the show. What movie do you want to talk about? You chose this one. Why did you choose this one, Rio Jose? It's a movie I enjoy. I'm not really um, watching movies all the time as probably you do. Um, As I, us losers I, with no lives. No, 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 just different now. interests. Yeah. I, I uh -huh. have no judgment around it. And, and I've found myself bringing up not just the movie, but the concept of the Groundhog Day with younger people, older people. It's just this reference 
and people get it, you know? And when I ask, did you watch it? And some people who have not watched it, I look at them like, what are you talking about? Like, how can you not watch this movie? Just as like you did years ago when I had not watched it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but um, I think that it, it just, you're missing on something if you haven't. So, um, and it's enjoyable. And it is what uh, TJ was saying before. It, it illustrates a path, a journey that it's worth paying attention regardless of the type, I think this is Enneagram, uh, Enneagram podcast, but I don't think the most important thing here is our types or instinctual biases, but the process um, of growth that it illustrates. Yeah, great. And so Maria Jose kind of touched on this idea of movie as meme. Right. And when we talked about uh, The Princess Bride a couple of episodes, we talked about how we couldn't think of a movie that had more that was more quotable. Right. It's almost like every line you can quote, uh, you know, Lebowski is almost like that as well, that, you know, there's just quote after quote. Um, but uh, I can't think of a movie that has taken uh, that has come to represent a concept in the popular culture in the way that Groundhog Day was, because as Maria Jose said, people, you know, all over the world of all ages understand what you mean when you say this feels like Groundhog Day, even if they haven't seen the movie. Um, I don't know. Thoughts on any movies that are in that same category, guys, uh, anything come to mind? Because I, I can't think of any. You know, there's the, the idea for, you know, some ideas from The Matrix have, you know, uh, taken hold, right? So that's close, but I don't think that's The first quite Matrix, as... not those garbage sequels. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Maybe yeah. Sliding Doors, although I haven't seen it myself, but the idea of divergent paths. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and again, but, but I think that if you mention Sliding Doors, you know, I'll get what you mean, but not everybody will, right? Uh, you know, but and I, I did don't know see what the that movie. Means. Well, see, there you go, right? So, um, yeah, so the, it's it's a movie. Was that Gwyneth Paltrow? Yep. Yeah, and a similar idea is Run Lola Run, the German movie with Franca Potente, which is you know again three different scenarios of you know what happens as she's trying to save her boyfriend. But still, this is one that just everybody gets. Yeah, so, so there was one, and maybe it's old as well. It's Sophie's Choice, I think that. Ah, that's good. Uh, that's yes. good. Yeah, very good, Maria. Say, we brought you here for no wonder the fans want you, right? <laughs> no, that's excellent. Slightly more depressing uh, yeah, connotations that one brings up. <laughs> yeah, that's but, the way to kill a party. You know? <laughs> but it brings up something regardless you know uh yes and for those listeners who don't understand that reference it's about a woman who had to choose which one of her children would die and which would survive right so um all right great so um tj doll you're going to give us a synopsis of uh, groundhog day uh why don't you do it and and, and please just do it once okay <laughs> okay groundhog day came out in 1993 it was co-written co-produced and directed by harold ramus it's about Phil Connors, played by Bill Murray, who's a TV weatherman in Pittsburgh. We meet him the day before he goes to Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania to cover the annual Groundhog Day festivities, where the famous groundhog Punxsutawney Phil either sees his shadow predicting uh, a longer winter or doesn't see his shadow predicting an earlier spring. So he heads on the road with his producer Rita, played by Andy McDowell, and cameraman Larry, played by Chris Elliott. 
Rita is much friendlier and optimistic than the sarcastic and snide and funny Phil. Uh, Phil is put up at a B&B, and the next morning his alarm clock goes off, and it's 6 a.m., and it plays the song I've Got You, Babe by Sonny and Cher, and he hears the banter of the local DJs, and then he goes to Gobbler's Knob, which is the part of the town where the groundhog is brought out of its hutch. He covers the story somewhat sarcastically, refuses to do a second more sincere take, and he's determined to get back to Pittsburgh that very day, but a blizzard sends them all back to Punxsutawney. So Phil stays another night in the B&B, wakes up the next morning, the alarm clock hits 6 a.m., plays the same song, the DJs do the same banter, Phil encounters the same people in the B&B who confirm that today is actually Groundhog Day. He goes to cover the story, no one else seems to realize they're repeating the day, and then this happens again, and again, and again, and again. Phil goes through various phases as he adjusts to this new bizarre reality. He eventually tries to seduce Rita, learning more and more about her through successive days, but he's unsuccessful. And then he tries to kill himself repeatedly, but he keeps waking up in bed at 6 a.m. no matter what. And then he turns a new leaf. He starts being kind to both Rita and Larry. He learns about the lives of some of the people who live in Punxsutawney. He makes ice sculptures. He learns to play the piano. He tries to save the life of an impoverished old man. He eventually covers the groundhog story in a genuinely warm and artful way and then goes about town doing various good deeds, ultimately playing piano at the town celebration that night. And this impresses Rita so much that they go out and have a beautiful date together. He tells her that he loves her and they fall asleep in each other's arms. And the next morning he wakes up and Rita is still next to him. And the clock is playing I've Got You, Babe, but with a different DJ banter because now it's finally February 3rd. He proposes that he and Rita live in Punxsutawney and they live happily ever after. But also suggests that they rent just to, to see if, you know, Which apparently just, was an ad lib by Bill yes. Murray. <laughs> right. <laughs> Thanks, TJ. Now, Maria Jose, do you celebrate Groundhog Day in, uh, in Chile? Do you really need to ask that? <laughs> we hardly <laughs> Do you have celebrate. groundhogs? Uh, no, no. Uh-huh. No, it's uh, not uh, a thank you at no. all. Not the animal, <laughs> not the festivity, not, not, not at all. Gotcha. And how about in Canada, TJ Dahl? Is, is it a holiday there? It's certainly observed. It's not a holiday. You don't get to not work that day. <laughs> the bank doesn't close, right? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but yes, yes. Everybody mentions that it's Groundhog Day. And I think the movie probably has a lot to do with that. I think the movie had a lot to do with more people just being aware that there is such a thing as Groundhog Day, much less paying any attention to it. It wouldn't be relevant here because February 2nd is the middle of summer. Right. So it would have to change the whole <laughs> meaning of it completely because it says, okay, so how much <laughs> summer do we have left? Yeah. And, yeah. you know, it's, it yeah. wouldn't You would work. have to do it in August, right? Is, yes. Is basically, yeah, gotcha. Uh-huh. Yes. So, uh, okay, great. Yeah, so, um, uh, you know, Groundhog Day is one of the sillier, uh, or at least was up until then, one of the sillier and least relevant. It was really just a, uh, a promotional scam by the uh, town of Punxsutawney, Philadelphia, which is a tiny, I'm Pennsylvania, I'm sorry, uh, which is just a tiny little Pohunk town. Um, But it has become sort of a national phenomenon, and particularly since the movie. Um, So, I don't know, you mentioned, TJ, that um, uh, about Ramos's quote uh, about this movie uh, representing different spiritual traditions. Also, um, 
has been pointed out to represent different philosophical traditions, for example, uh, as well. Uh, For example, Nietzsche had uh, the idea of eternal recurrence, right, that that we live, you know, the same life over and over and over again, exactly the same and so forth. And some other philosophers have expanded on that or modified it to some extent. Um, Also, it is very coherent with... um, Camus' Myth of Sisyphus, which is one of my favorite essays, uh, talking where Camus is exploring uh, or, or exploring Sisyphus as the representative of all of us. You know, he's the guy that had to push the rock up the hill and then let it roll back down. And the gods felt that uh, meaningless uh, uh, labor could be the most awful punishment, so they cursed him to do this for eternity. Uh, But Camus takes a different take on it and says that this is, you know, the condition we all face, and that is certainly um, reflected in the movie. Ironically, the screenwriter had none of that in mind when he wrote this. He was just doing kind of a thought experiment and said, I wonder what it would be like to do the same thing every day, right? Um, So... um, uh, before I go further on that, uh, other thoughts, observations about this as a, the- a philosophical theme? Just to build on the myth of Sisyphus, I don't know if any of you have seen, it wasn't a particularly successful movie, but the movie Everybody Wants Some by Richard Linklater, which is an autobiographical film about his experiences as a college baseball player in Texas in 1980. And in a scene near the end of the movie, he discusses a paper that he wrote about the myth of Sisyphus, which I think was in his college application. And he relates it to the experience of being an athlete where you have to do the same motions again and again and again. And he takes something different out of it, which was that the story is usually given as an idea of a hellish punishment. Whereas he sees it somewhat differently as it gives Sisyphus something to do, something to focus on. And his experience as an athlete, which Richard Linklater really was, is that there's you can actually find plenty of nuance in a repeated acts uh, in a repeated activity and find just you improve at it and it focuses your mind and it can improve the entire quality of your existence yeah and this was um uh, camus point as well and where he said you know the first reaction to it is scorn at our condition you know and there's a great quote in there that uh, you know uh, the assumption that all fate all fates can be surmounted by scorn and then we we begin to realize well actually they can't and so we have to learn to accept our condition and it's only when we accept our condition that we can truly grow and find freedom so um, this is not just a light, funny comedy. This is not Stripes. Uh, you know, this is not... Uh, same writer, uh, same stars. Uh, well, there you go, right? And so this goes to show we start to see a change, at least in the career. No, actually, the change in Bill Murray's career actually had its roots earlier, which I want to talk about in a moment. But uh, but again, it is, it's not Caddyshack. It's not just a fun movie. And this was a source of the tension between Harold Ramis and uh, Bill Murray. In fact, after making this movie, they had been good friends, and after making this movie, they didn't talk again for 20 years because of a uh, difference in uh, what they wanted to achieve with the movie. Bill Murray wanted it to be more philosophical and contemplative, whereas Ramis Ramis wanted it to be a fun movie. Um, So, um, yeah, go ahead, Maria. What is also interesting to me is how my mind goes to like why is this happening and they just couldn't bother 
with it. They don't explain why this is happening. And they just enjoy or kind of show that, present it and um, leave it up to you. It's not a, it's not, it's a non-issue why this is happening. Actually, one of the things that Ramos said in that interview that I read was that it wasn't in the original draft. That's one of the things he liked about the original draft. And then the head of the studio said, you got to explain it. So he wrote an explanation in which an ex-girlfriend of Phil's who was spurned by him, wanted to get revenge on him and buys a book called like a hundred hexes you can put on someone and steals Phil's watch. And, you know, hence the time element of it. And then that was in the script. And then there was this change of studio heads and the new guy came in and he met up with him. And the new guy said, what's with all this explanation of why he's caught in the time? You don't need that. And Ramus is like, thank you. Whoosh, oh, gone. that's interesting. Yeah. And I, I don't miss the fact that we don't find out how and why this is happening. I don't think that's necessary. I think that would put it into the realm of like, there's a rational explanation as to why, which is ridiculous. I think too, it would have lessened the viewer experience of what Phil was going through, right? I mean, because, you know, I mean, that had to be the question for him as well, you know, why on earth is this happening and so forth? And I, you know, and we're there with him in experiencing that. So, um, yeah, TJ and Grassi, were you going to say something? Yeah, just that if they had explained it, then it puts it on some outside agency it makes Phil sort of like a victim of, of the will of some higher power or something. And without the explanation, he's sort of protagonist and antagonist at the same time. And so it's really, it's just focuses on him and his experience. So yeah, I think it's much for the better that they didn't go down that road. Yeah. And even, uh, even though it wasn't written to uh, explicitly track, you know, uh, spiritual narratives that would have been gone if we had seen the whole, you know, witchcraft spell or something, right? I mean, it wouldn't, it would not have been a philosophical movie anymore. It would not have been something that got you thinking about the experience necessarily, right? It becomes a, how do I solve this problem of, you know, uh, uh, sort of uh, movie, which would have been much less successful, I think. No. Um, I did read that the, uh, so there was a lot of back and forth between the script writer, the original script writer, and uh, Harold Ramis, who basically rewrote it, um, you know, many parts of it to make it lighter and more, you know, popular. Uh, they did say that they used Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's Five Stages of Grief uh, as a roadmap uh, in a broad way. But beyond that, there's no sign that there was any they weren't setting out to make a philosophical statement like, say, for example, the Wachowskis were with The Matrix, right? They were very clearly wanting to make a statement. Um, but uh, Harold Ramis and the uh, scriptwriter just wanted to make a comedy, right? And, you know, make a good movie. So. And one of the changes, supposedly in the first draft, it opens with Phil waking up on the 10,000th year of going through the same wow. day. Wow. Like they established that through voiceover. Wow. And <laughs> Ramus thought, uh, first of all, 10,000 years is a lot. <laughs> In the end, he, he believes that the movie, he repeated the day for about the equivalent of 10 years. Uh, but also, he just liked the idea of the viewer experiencing at the same rhythm that Phil does, of just that it's new to us the way that it's new to him. And that was one of the interesting things about the pacing of the movie is that you knew it was a long time. Right. But it didn't seem like eternity. Right. It, it almost felt as if, OK, uh, it's awful, uh, but not unendurable. I mean, 10,000 years of that would just be, you know, unendurable. So. Um, all right. Great. Uh, any other interesting casting 
ideas. They wanted Tom Hanks. Every movie in 1993 wanted Tom Hanks to star in it. Uh, but Hanks felt that uh, if he was the character, uh, because he is uh, so likable, and so his image is one of being such a likable guy that the transformation wouldn't have seemed as sincere, right? Uh, or interesting. Or, or interesting, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Michael Keaton was considered, Chevy Chase was considered for the role. Um, and it was the first movie, I really think, that showed that Bill Murray could act. And in fact, that was one of the concerns about having him in the movie is that uh, they weren't sure that he had the acting chops for this film, but uh, Harold Ramis believed that he did and proved to be true. All right, so um, so I, I've been thinking about how I want to uh, get into this movie, and there are definitely the psycho-spiritual elements that we want to address, but I think I'd like to talk about Enneagram types first, just to kind of get that onto the table. There are really only two characters in this movie, I mean, only two substantive characters, and Who everybody cares else about is Ron, Larry, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, Larry, you know, Larry, Larry is a prop. Uh, Poor Larry. You know, yeah, you know, uh, twenty-five Ned, cents. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Ned, uh, Ned is. Uh, oh, I'm trying to. Uh, Ned Ryerson, yeah, needle nose <laughs> Ned, uh, by the great, great Stephen Toblowski. I mean, I, I just I'll watch that guy anytime doing anything. I love him. Anytime he shows up, I know I. I I've already gotten my money's worth on the movie, um, but uh, but you know I don't know who we could go all day and not decide what Enneagram types any of those folks were. So really, we're looking at Andy McDowell's Rita and Bill Murray's Phil. Uh, I want to go at Rita first, um, just to get the easy one out of the way. I think, or at least I think, an easy one. Uh, Maria Jose, tell us about Rita, please, and what you think is her Enneagram type. I was between two subtypes. Um, so I saw her first as a preserver. Uh, she's a lot about kind of the festivities and uh, home and kind of the nest in general and um, history or literature and things like that. And she's kind of not very flashy uh, and very good with the nuts and bolts, being a producer and all of that. So that was easier for me, for my... And then I was between nine and seven. Uh, she has this lightness um, and she's sweet. And I think I'll stay with nine. There's this idealism, like idealizing couples and partner in general and what family is. And she sees kind of the nice uh, or the good in everyone. And toasts to world peace i mean that's kind of <laughs> it's just too much but a little but, on the nose there yes yeah i wouldn't make a call based on that but given that that was my hypothesis anyway it just strengthened it so that was that would be my Good. thoughts tj or tj yeah completely agree subtype hadn't even occurred to me uh but everything you've said makes sense but she seemed like a knock it out of the park nine to me just so nine -ish. gentle optimistic sees the best in people, she's sincere, she's easygoing, even when Phil is being a dick. And when he's finally expressing interest in her and wants to know about her, she says things like, I just go with the flow, see what happens. Or when she comes to believe that he is stuck in this recurring day, she says, maybe it's not a curse, it's just in how you look at it. It's a very optimistic 90 approach. I think Andy McDowell's probably a nine in real life, 
I think she's built a career of playing nines. And I met a woman who had a small part in four weddings and a funeral who described how on set she just could not have been nicer. Just completely friendly, low key. So yeah, I think she's just a nine period. And maybe if somebody else had played it, it might've come across as another type, but yeah, hard for me to see that character as anything other than a nine. There's several parts of the movie where she mentions or refers to not being arrogant. with these really kind of not wanting arrogant people around her and yeah. And this is an, an issue for nines, right? Of, yes. You know, this, uh, the big fear of the nine is that someone will perceive them as being arrogant. Yeah. Yeah. TJ and Gracia, thoughts on? Reading? Yeah, it was interesting. You said you were torn between seven and nine because that's exactly where I landed. And I wonder if it's the difference between Andy McDowell's performance and then the words that were written in the script. Like, I think maybe if you read just the script language, it could come across more seven-ish. You know, she talks a lot about having fun. She mentions fun a lot. She's very enthusiastic, but it's hard to see Andy McDowell as anything other than a nine. Like you said, TJ, she's just the kind, well, actually what's the line? Uh, he said when she's sleeping next to him at one point, uh, Phil says, you're the kindest, sweetest, prettiest lady I've ever met in my whole life. I've never seen anyone that's kinder to people than you are. And that seems like Andy McDowell. And for whatever it's worth, uh, my mother and my mother-in-law are both nines. And that that line pretty much describes both of them. So so I'm on board with uh, Rita as a nine. They must be listeners of the show if uh, yeah, you're, you're going to go and say that, TJ. Yeah. <laughs> They're like um, half I'm of sure our audience. I'm sure they are. So. <laughs> They're the ones that keep sending the uh, messages about bringing Maria Jose back, right? Right, yeah. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, look, uh, I, for me, this was a hardcore nine character. It was pretty obvious. Uh, um, and yes, if, if you look at some of the words, yeah, you could read nine or you could read seven into it, but the affect is pure nine. And there were a lot of themes about peace and wanting people to get along and wanting to go live on a mountaintop somewhere and, you know, all of these things. And Andy McDowell, I always think of as a walking sigh, you know, I mean, just this, you know, kind of, <laughs> you know, going through life with her incredible hair, you know, and, uh, you know, and, uh, and that accent and, and the, and the Southern accent, you know, that's, you know, not obnoxiously Southern, but, you know, um, make your it's, knees weak kind of Southern. It's interesting. Yeah. It's not on the issue of the, of the movie, but I'm starting to get the accents of Americans. It's, yeah, so I was guessing it, this must be Southern. And yeah, well, it's nice to see that. We all just sound the same to you? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> well, there's subtleties and they don't sound the same, but I'm not always able to identify where it's coming from. And and by the way, TJ, just for you, when, when Maria Jose says Americans, she's referring to people from the United States right. because, you know, TJ is an American as well. So, uh, but, so am uh, I. <laughs> this is a long going thing that Maria Jose and I have, you know, that I think it was uh, the know, first conversation we ever had. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> that uh, that I, I helped her understand why some other people on the IEA board could not comprehend that American does not refer to just people from the United States. But um, um, I just I yeah. want to throw one thing out there. I have a question for you guys, not to play devil's advocate necessarily, but I want to see if you can clarify something. The one hesitation I had with Rita as a nine, and maybe this could be explained by the fact that she's just a very healthy person. Uh, one of the stereotypes of the nine is that they can be pushovers, that they are like almost like ghosts or that there's no substance to them. 
that they're easily swayed, that they can't stand up to, for themselves. And Rita has no problems standing up to Phil. She's very firm with him when she needs to be. She seems to be in possession of herself, very confident. So is that just the mark of a very healthy nine? Or talk me through, someone. I could see how someone could have a question mark about that. Yeah. You know, I thought about it. And I think that's a misunderstanding about nines. When you think that you can do whatever you want with them, that there's no substance. And I'm glad that you're bringing it up. Uh, I think that you, when you look at the whole, you see that she has all the elements of the nine and still is a reasonable, competent in life human being, you know? And even when she slaps his face or stands up to him, she's nice, you know? There's some sweetness in everything she does. So that's what happens with nines. They can say the worst thing to you and they will sound nice anyway most times. Yeah, I, I'm going to add to this because it is one of the misperceptions of nines. And, you know, uh, as somebody who works with senior executives, uh, a disproportionate number of leaders in big organizations are nines. And, you know, so the way I think about these things is our issues are like fault lines, right? Meaning when pressure builds up and pressure builds up, it'll break in a certain place, right? And for nines, when all the pressure builds up and the pressure builds up, it will break in that they will become passive in a particular incident, right? And again, depending on how much pressure they feel, how healthy they are, et cetera, et cetera, you'll see more or less of that. But most nines I know are assertive, confident people, but that tends to be their thing. Now, not all of them. And the other thing is, and this is something that is not, appreciated enough in the Enneagram world. It is a self-selecting community. The kind of people who go to self-help programs, right? Who are the people that tend to go to self-help programs? People have a hard time, you know, how do I, I want to put this Careful, Jerry, care, right? careful. Losers. That's what I'm saying. Losers. No. <laughs> no, of course, that's not the case. But a lot of them tend to be people who are struggling on how to, you know, deal with some of my issues. So it is a disproportionate representation uh, around nines or an inaccurate representation of the actual proportions. My mother's a nine. You get on the wrong side of her, she'll punch you in your face. I can guarantee. Well, because she had to put up with you. Well, that's and uh, well, I, or I could say this is the way. This is the reason why I am how I am. You know. But uh, anyway, go ahead, Mario. Yeah, and, and they also pick their battles. So they, you won't see them being like that in every time they're kind of being pushed, but they will. And when they decide to do so. Yeah. But good question, TJ, because you're right. It, it's, you know, we, we get so many of these stereotypes in so much of the conversation about the Enneagram. And it's because people have read and probably misinterpreted books and, you know, or heard it from people who have read and misinterpreted books or, or who have simply not worked with real people around this. So um, it, it's, it's a big, big, big pet peeve. Uh, of ours uh, on this sort of thing. So thanks for bringing it up. One more thing to add to that is when yeah. she's describing what she wants in life, she doesn't mention career goals. Yes. It's all personal life stuff that, you know, we don't know her very much aside from, you know, two days in her life. Right. But she's single and she- Yeah, what's with that? Looks and like uh, she's put her focus on her career. And what she would really like is to have a family. Yeah. And and she also talked about sort of finding herself 
in the role she's in because in college she studied you know medieval French literature or something or you know romantic French romantic poetry uh, so uh, yeah so there is there are these nine-ish elements uh, for sure but uh, they're not all clouds uh, or pushovers like people tend to think if you want to find out more about my work with the Enneagram and organizations of all kinds or our certification programs visit me at mariosecura.com or follow me on social media. Hi, I'm TJ Daw, and I do one-on-one consulting on creative projects of all kinds, as well as Enneagram coaching. I teach an online course on how to create your own one-person show, and I speak at events and perform shows of my own. For more information, go to my website, www.tjdawe.ca. This is TJ Ingracia. To check out my YouTube series, Typecast, which explores the Enneagram through film and television, Go to youtube.com slash typecast. And if you're interested in my professional video production services, check out tjangracia.com. This leaves us with Phil. And first of all, I want to know, why does he have the same name as the groundhog, right? I, I mean, I, you know, that, that, you know, there's that one. Yeah, well, yeah, well you know, I mean, they, the writers had a choice here, right? Yeah, you know, I mean, and they had time to think about it. Do we really, you know, why give him the same name as the rodent? Uh, I think I did read that Danny Rubin intentionally wanted him to have the same name as, as the is groundhog. Is that so? Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. Uh, yeah. Why, I don't know, but yeah. that's the choice he made. <laughs> So, uh, all right. So, who wants to venture out on a limb here? And uh, Maria Jose does. Okay, our returning champion. All right, she's fearless. I'm going to come back. All right, Maria Jose, tell us what type you think he is. And I'm willing to get it right or not. But my guess is that Phil is a transmitting six played by by a four. And that comes through. Interesting. Do I need to justify it? Justify, yeah. Okay, so... Provide your rationale. I will. Uh, Start with the transmitting six Yeah, I will. So the transmitting, because um, he's not really good at listening. He's good at talking. He thinks that he's a celebrity. He calls himself the talent. Um, He talks about uh, preserving stuff with more anxiety. So he talks a lot about preserving stuff and the hotel and the food and the espresso. And it's all about how he likes his stuff, but but not from a preserving place, I think. There's a status orientation to it. Yes. Yes, absolutely. He's not navigating, I think. And and again, he's not preserving. He, he wants to be seen. Uh, he's okay. He has a good... He has an easy time articulating what he wants to say. Um, he's in front of the camera and just feels very comfortable uh, when he's reporting. And uh, again, he's the talent, you know, he's like a diva and um, no conflict around that. So that's why I think he's transmitting. So, and okay, so explain the six. So at the beginning of the movie, it's all about kind of I deserve more or I'm kind of uncomfortable in this role and covering Groundhog Day for the fourth time and it feels forish. However, when as time goes by and he keeps reliving that day, he's the expansion of his worldview is around how things should be done and not thinking about tomorrow and taking risks 
and just doing what I want and not what I have to. A bit counterphobic as well, like going when he was on the train, uh, about to crash with the train and do all those things. So to me, although his affect was not that sexish, the things that he was doing and the way in which he evolved had more to do with this six path than any other. Interesting. Okay, great. Uh, let's save the conversation of Bill Murray's type uh, for after we talk about Phil. Okay. So, uh, TJ, TJ, thoughts on Phil's personality style? Four was my guess. Uh, Maria Jose, everything you said makes sense. Here's the four stuff that I was seeing. And transmitting also makes sense. I hadn't really thought too much about subtype. Uh, the forest stuff, he sneers at people. He sneers at common people for being common. People like blood sausage too. People are morons. You know, yeah, they're hicks, Rita. You know, when Rita's celebrating how they've been staying up singing and warming themselves by the fire and coming back and singing. He believes he's inherently better than others. Uh, he takes his success for granted. And his success seems to be on his own terms. He's doing pretty well as far as a TV broadcaster goes. He's on a major network. He gets to, or a local network, but still, he's, he's able to use his own humor, his own style. He's able to be himself. And there's no superior that's coming in telling him he's got to shape up and do the weather properly, all right? Like, he's got freedom. He's got creative control. Things are going pretty well. And all he can think about is that he would rather be somewhere else. He would rather be somewhere further on. You know, he believes this is going to be the last time he comes to Punxsutawney. As he goes down the levels, we see wish fulfillment and sex, indulgence, sneering at Rita's having studied 19th century French poetry. Although, just to poke a hole in my own theory, you would think that a four would be pretty impressed with somebody for having studied 19th century French poetry, apropos of nothing. As he goes up the levels, we see him explore his creativity. He becomes generous. He sees beauty where he couldn't have conceived of it before, namely in people. He participates in the world. He becomes altruistic and sincere and loving. Uh, he learns that doing good things are good to do for their own sake, not for money, not for fame, not to secure a place in heaven. The doing feels good. And he eventually displays healthy one-ish qualities, including discipline and altruism, healthy two-ish qualities, including loving, caring, knowing things about people, including a scene near the end where it's the party and he's having all these brief interactions with different people in Punxsutawney and he gives the couple tickets to WrestleMania. And I thought, that is a mark of a pretty healthy four. Is like, I don't like wrestling. I don't respect people who like wrestling, but you clearly love it. And this will bring you nothing but joy that I can give this to you unselfconsciously. And he displays healthy forest qualities. Namely, he's creative. He's collaborative. He shares his creative gifts with the world. He participates in the world and he sees beauty in ordinary people in an ordinary place. You know, when he, when it's finally February 3rd and he comes out the front door with Rita, his comment is, it's so beautiful. And he's been stuck for 10 years in the same place in the same day. And now he sees the beauty in it. And I just thought that seemed like a pretty healthy four, a beautiful four mo uh, moment. DJ Ingracia. All right. Well, I, <laughs> I have a different take as well. So we're going around the circle on this one. Okay. So I'm going to make the argument that Phil is a weird hybrid of characteristics of both eight and three. First of all, I don't think that necessarily striving to feel powerful is the right 
word for him. I think other words like independent and in control is more his thing. Eights can frustrate others with their arrogance, hostility, and stubbornness. Prior, I was thinking about this, prior to his, when he really starts to grow and be a healthier person, he doesn't have a single human that he interacts with that he has a positive or or connected interaction with. He's hostile and biting towards everyone. TJ, like you said, the blood sausage, you know, people are People like blood sausages, people are morons. I don't know what blood sausage is. I'm quite sure that I would hate it, and I don't know why anyone would like it. Maria Jose, you're, you're a fan of blood sausage, right? I'm not, but we eat it a lot. And yeah. yeah, my family, some people in my family love it. Do you want to explain what blood sausage is for our listeners? It's a sausage made of blood. <laughs> it's a very descriptive name. Some people put some nuts in it or uh, rice. It has different... Um, species that uh, spices that go in there, but um, it's pretty much blood sausage made yeah. of blood. So, so they figured nobody would eat it if they knew what it really was. So, we'll call it what it actually is because nobody would believe that that's exactly what it is, right? And I will say too that um, blood sausage is very popular in European communities, right? Being a, of Eastern European descent, there was a lot of blood sausage in my early days. And the Pittsburgh area where Punxsutawney uh, Phil is, is highly populated with Polish and German uh, descendants. So it's not surprising that they uh, spoke about blood sausage. There we go again down this road of trivia that nobody cares about. But but now you know, and someday you will thank me. All right. So uh, go ahead, TJ. Let me see here. Okay. So yeah. So he just he's 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 hostile towards everyone that he interacts with. Um, eights have this belief about work that things work best when they are in control. Uh, the first time that he does the report after the groundhog sees his shadow. Rita asks him to do it again, and he says, we got it, and he drops the mic and he walks away. Um, he'd rather freeze to death on the highway than go back to Punxsutawney. Um, Rita, or he, at one point in the diner, he asks Rita, you think I'm acting this way because I'm egocentric? And she says, I know you're egocentric. It's your defining characteristic. I thought this is interesting from the Enneagram guidebook. Eights get into trouble when they tell themselves, the world is a threatening place that will not cut me a break. I must take from life anything good that I can get. And once he sort of realizes, I guess this is the when he's at the bowling alley with Gus and the other guy, and he, the moment that things switch for him is when he goes from being completely out of control. He has no control over this daily loop. And the guy says, there'd be no consequences. We could do whatever we wanted. So he changes. He immediately takes complete control of his situation and he uses it to his advantage. I think at his his support strategy at type five, he's overly detached and he's very insensitive to the needs and feelings of those around him. And his neglected strategy at type two would be, you know, he's sort of a lone wolf and he has no genuine connections with anybody until he till he grows. As, as he grows through the film, I think there are some aspects where he moves from what would be the low side of eight. He's arrogant, he's hostile, he's demanding. And he moves towards the high side of eight where he's more decisive and he's confident and he's inspiring to the townspeople that are around him. Okay, so that's the eight piece of it. And I think there's also some weird kind of three-ish overlays too. Clearly, he's striving to feel outstanding. He wants to move up in his career. He's trying to get out of the network that he's at in Pittsburgh. He's overly self-centered. Uh, he's, you know, uh, there's this thing about, uh, cutting corners for the three. So, you know, when he's trying to seduce Rita at first, 
he's trying to do it from a way of um, what does she basically just I'm going to pretend to do all the things that she wants and needs. And I'm going to give sort of a, a, a simulacrum of a real relationship without having to have any real connection with her. Uh, he's uh, ambitious and success oriented, but he's also very shallow. He's very attention seeking, which can be on the lower side of three. But the things that he does pursue, uh, he pursues expertise. You know, he's he becomes an expert piano player. He learns to speak French fluently. He's an expert at throwing cards into a hat. He's a brilliant ice sculptor, as we come to learn. Um, in the scene where him and Rita are dancing on the floor towards the end of the film, all the townspeople are coming up to him and you know, thanking him and praising him and all this stuff. And and one of the old couples, the the wife says, I, Dr. Connors, I want to thank you for fixing Felix's back. So apparently at some point he learned to be a <laughs> chiropractor to yeah. or he went to med school or did something. There's a deleted um, scene. Oh, was there? Okay. Yeah. Oh, interesting. <laughs> I didn't scene. know that. Yeah. yeah. There you go. So, um, you know, I, so there's also some growth from the low side of three, uh, not being considerate and not you know, considering the values of others to becoming inspiring and an example of high performance and excellence. I don't think he's, uh, he doesn't seem necessarily flashy enough to really be a three. And he's also, there's no positivity. He's not trying to put a positive spin. He puts really more of a negative spin on everything. So it's definitely not a, a true representation. But I think, uh, you know, sometimes we do this category of the conflicted type. So I see him as sort of this weird conflicted hybrid of, of those two personally. Yeah. So I, I I agree with the last thing you said there about uh, this being an Enneagram, conf, Enneagrammatically conflicted character, right? Because it's not a pure depiction of any of the types in my perspective. Um, it's, it's a bit jumbled. And I do think, as Maria Jose said, there was some tension between the character as written and Bill Murray. Right. Uh, a lot of this was ad libbed. A lot of it was, you know, tweaked as they went. And so I do think there was this conflict. Um, oh, and let me let me just say one last thing. And I could there could be also be some overlap there with whatever eight ish things I might have been seeing. There could be overlap with the transmitting six where there can be some similar looking things that happen there. Yeah. So if I with with the caveat that this character is kind of all over the place right uh, i would have made the case for him being a actually a navigating four okay and i'll tell you why navigating Maria. I, I saw your eyes pop out of your head there okay but um the um so you know, again, for me, I agree with a lot of what TJ said. You know, I, I remember years ago being in the Pocono Mountains for a Riso Hudson training, and uh, Don Riso and I uh, took a drive to the local Walmart, right? And, you know, Don was a preserving four and a very much a Manhattan person. And we walked into the Walmart, and he's wandering around staring aghast at what he is seeing. He's just looking around. He just cannot believe what he's looking at. And he says to me, do people really come here? You know, and, you know, and it was just this, you know, and it reminded me of Phil Connor, you know, of just this. And it wasn't as disdainful. You know, he wasn't, Don wasn't being, um, you know, hostile or uh, belligerent or demeaning of people. It was just this is just so inelegant, right? And there was a lot of in 
and fill this you you people you know again you're the kind of people that eat blood sausage what you know what do you, you know uh, kind of thing and no offense Maria I'll say to you or your family but um or to all my relatives who also eat it um I don't get offended it only talks about how small ignorance. I am, right? Yes. I get it. I, I get. I get it. <laughs> so, uh, but you know, and even with the asking of you know asking for espresso, which you know right now wouldn't be that big a deal, but in 1993, it was a little hoity-toity, you know. And certainly in that environment, you know, it was uh, it was this you know d- d- contempt for the small people that came through over and over again. Um, it was this feeling of I do not belong with these people, right? I am special, I am different, I deserve more. And even, and so there was all this, there was huge self-absorption, okay? You know, it's all about me, it's all about me. I can only see things through my lens. And that was something that came throughout the movie until the transition, of course, right? And this is what we see in fours as they go from unhealthy to healthy is this self-absorption turning into this real empathy and kindness toward others. Um, I think there was a lot of that, even when you, you look at what he uh, started, you know, the skills that he started learning, right? Uh, you know, uh, playing classical piano as well as playing jazz and blues on the piano, uh, ice sculpturing, you who, know. And, uh, who would do that? Well, you know, the, yeah, you know the, the, uh, yeah, a four would do that, right? I mean, yeah, you know. So, um, uh, you know, and now why did I say navigating, okay? Because this is the tricky one. And Rio's, I hear what you're saying about the transmitting. And I think a lot of, you know, some of the behaviors, again, I think it's a conflicted character. Right. Uh, And I also think that uh, when of the navigating fours I have known, when they're less healthy, they're highly self-absorbed, you know. So usually that's not a characteristic we associate with navigators, particularly Maria Jose and I, since we are navigators, we don't think about the self-absorption of navigators, right? But uh, um, the, the, you know, they can we're very too much. We're, we're, well, see, I think that's what it is. We've, we've done our work, as people like to say. I don't look like this type. You know, I've done my work, so I don't look like the type I am. Uh, you you know, do? So. Let me tell you that you do. <laughs> So do I, but go ahead. So, um, so, you know, what I got was this, you know, inner conflict around the transmitting thing, okay, that there was this need to transmit, this need to kind of, um, you know, um, uh, project that. Now, can I make a hard case that he was a navigating four? No. The reason I say that is because he reminds me of a number of navigating fours that I've known and... My hypothesis is is that that's what Bill Murray is in real life. Okay, so that may have been biasing my decision. All right. Yeah. So I I hear you, and when I think about him eating, so when he started realizing and taking advantage of this situation, it's all about not caring about the future, the glass half full or half empty, and uh, not following kind of what he should be doing to take take care of himself. It's kind of smoking, eating, um, risking his life. And there's something at the end. Um, we could do whatever we want as if there's no tomorrow, you know? To me, that's more of a six-ish thing. I mean, a theme rather than a four, but I could be wrong. Yeah, I don't know. So I, I think affectively, you know, for me, 
the Ned Ryerson character was more of a transmitting six, right? Uh, the, the, you know, and so I think they had very different affects. Um, I you know. look. I'm with you in the affect. Yeah. Yeah. But when I look at the behavior, the thing that the things that he's doing and what he's thinking and how he evolves, I see a lot of six. Yeah, yeah, and it's not a completely wrong hypothesis. So, um, oh, thank you know, you. That's <laughs> <laughs> we won't have to cut my piece, PJ. So when you edit it, you don't need to cut me all together. I mean, you can leave it. <laughs> Whichever one of you sends me a bigger tip, that's the one I'm going to cut out. <laughs> now, does, does it change either of the analysis with the idea in mind? Like he's he's eating and smoking and doing all these self destructive habits, but he has it in his mind. There is no tomorrow. There are no consequences. It doesn't matter what he eats or does because it's, he's going to wake up in the same bed in the state he woke up in that morning. So I don't know if that. Yeah. And, and because look, if there were no consequences and no tomorrow, I hate to think what my behavior would be like, at least for a while. Right. I mean, I'd have been sitting there with all the desserts as well. Right. I'd be you know, seeing how many of the bottles in the bar I can drink and, you know, so forth. So I don't want to just attribute that to, you know, uh, personality necessarily as what would somebody do in that situation? Yeah. Go and, ahead, Rose. Yeah. And I, look, I don't want to try to win it all, but um, I'll just say one more thing. Um, he said something, sometimes you have to take chances. Uh, I'm not going to live by the rules anymore. Mm -hmm. You know? Uh, so that's why I was like, Okay, yeah. but he was saying it with an affect that was not coherent. Right, you right. Know? So, and that's yeah. and that's the key thing I think, and that's the thing I want to take away because I, 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 I TJ, I almost sent a, um, a a message to Maria Jose uh, yesterday saying, "I bet TJ Gracia says he's a three, uh, because I, I I know how your mind works by this point, and it's, you made valid points, right? There's a lot of three-ish behavior." there and i can see some of the eight stuff too i can tell you as an 88 that character was you know um you know elements of eight but not really an eight um but again your argument is valid because of the um we'll say the the the, the camel like nature of um the character right you know there's that old saying that uh, a camel is a uh, horse designed by a committee and i felt that way about this character as well right so um it's kind of a camel. Okay. Other thoughts on uh, I want to I, I want to talk about the uh, the other part of this, how people grow and what was represented by that. Uh, and I want to touch on Bill Murray and his Enneagram type. Um, but uh, any other any other comments on Phil that we didn't get to? One thing I want to mention is that as a four, I would say the premise of the movie is perfectly engineered to put a four in a situation they would least want to be in. A small town, a celebration of something that really means nothing, that people are excited about, singing like maybe the only thing that would be worse is if they were singing Christmas carols. And that the song he has to wake up to every day is I've Got You, Babe. A trite, treacly pop song. Yes, and, and then have to listen to the Pennsylvania polka over and over again as well, right? Is that what that song is? It's pretty oh, catchy. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> it'll be in my head all day. Yeah, but for when when he goes to, you know, what is it, Gobbler's Knob, uh, that's the song that's playing, the Pennsylvania polka, which being from Pennsylvania and being Polish and German, I've heard a whole lot of that song. So, I, yeah, awful. So if he's not transmitting, how do you explain the 
dressing up as Bronco and <laughs> going to the movies. <laughs> so, that to me. Uh, yeah, so number one, boredom, right? You know, I mean, you're in a situation where it's like, man, I've got to do something different from what I've done yesterday because I'm doing the same damn thing every day. So, uh, you know, you could attribute it to that. And again, I'm not arguing that he's not a transmitter, right? Uh, okay, so enough of Phil uh, and his uh, Enneagram inconsistencies. So Bill Murray, um, and Maria Jose already paused this. Maria Jose, why do you think Bill Murray's a four? Well, because you talk so much about him and all the things that he does that are four-ish. So I, I, I could say that I have made up my, my own mind on that, but um, it's not. <laughs> yeah. I, I, yeah, look, Bill Murray, by... All accounts, while he's quirky and seems fun, is kind of a dick, right? I mean, you know, and he's well known for being kind of a dick, for being a bit of a prima donna, for being self-absorbed and making everything revolve around him. And as as someone put it in the uh, on the Wikipedia page, um, he's a jerk, but can he, he can make you laugh, and that's why the character of Phil worked because he's clearly an unlikable person, but there's something about him probably is humor that makes you want to like him right i think and it I, was andy mcdowell that actually said that, yes. that he's a jerk but <laughs> yeah and you know but uh, you know i've heard that many times from many different people and you know so um and you know again you just you know the way he is just uh, and again i think he's navigating just because of the way he has you know stayed away from the whole hollywood thing Right. And one would think, oh, navigating he wants to be in the middle of that. No, actually, what happens with the navigating four is I am trying to establish how I am different from everybody else. Right. I like people. They're interesting to me at a distance, but I'm an outs uh, you know, I'm an outlier. Okay, uh, and these are the ways in which I'm an outlier. And there's also this element that I see in navigating fours of this seeking new hobbies as a way of expression, cooking, music, uh, new careers, that sort of thing, almost looking sevenish in the way that they express themselves. So um, I don't know, uh, TJ or TJ, any thoughts about Bill Murray, the man? Bill Murray is not one of those, fam he's been really famous for a long time. You never see him on the cover of People magazine. He's not a gossip mag kind of celebrity. He rarely gives interviews. Or when he does, it's almost like he's playing a character of himself. So it is hard to get to know who the actual person is. So that makes him just tougher to discern in my case. And I haven't done research of like watching the few extended interviews there are of him. I definitely agree he's prickly and strange. And if anything, I think the fault in this movie is the scenes in which he's sincere. I don't really believe him. As a and I think that's where Sofia Coppola just squared the circle with the final moment in Lost in Translation when he whispers in Scarlett Johansson's ear and we don't hear it. Perfect. So we don't have to hear him and then think, nah, that's not sincere. In this, there was just a slight lack of sincerity. It's like he was playing that. I just, I didn't think he really pulled it off. And, you know, some would say, oh, that's not, you know, four, you know, fours are authentic, sincere. Yeah. Not really, you know, not all the time. It depends on how healthy they are, right? And it, you know, and fours can fall into playing a role, just like anybody else, particularly the navigating four, right? Because it's about creating this persona uh, that establishes my group identity. Um, uh, go ahead, Maria, are you going to say something there? Yeah, that there's also this emotional intensity that some people, this guy thought that he couldn't act 
to me, his way of acting is he doesn't have to do a lot, but I, it, I know kind of, I get the message, you know, and it's a kind of a very forish characteristic, I think, this emotional intensity, and then it comes out. He just seems sad to me, right? I mean, even though he is a comedian and a very funny guy, his natural state seems like sadness to me. And, you know, and a lot of people, I've seen a lot of people say that Bill Murray is a nine, um, and uh, which I think is the next, yeah, I've, I've heard people say that. But particularly it's those folks on the internet who think that they have ownership of what fours are and anybody who's not that version of four can't be. Um, but, um, but think of what we've said about him and how other people have described him of being kind of a dick who makes everybody, you know, work around him. When when have we ever said that about a nine, right? You know, we just said the opposite about Andy McDowell. When we talked about Clint Eastwood on the episode of the nine, everybody was talking about how nice he was, you know. That's not what they're saying about Bill Murray, right? They're saying, you know, kind of a dick, kind of an oddball, kind of a this, kind of that. And I just don't think there's any other Enneagram type that really fits him uh, based on these descriptions. Okay, so um, enough of that. Um, so... The path to growth here, and Maria Jose, this is one of the things that made you interested in talking about the, the movie. So uh, I'm going to turn this over to you. Um, tell us what's interesting about this movie in that regard. Yeah, so so to me, besides all the things that you mentioned at the beginning of this being like a spiritual journey or referencing that path for people, I think that it very clearly identifies what I see we do when we grow up. And first, we start becoming aware and he had plenty of time to do all of these things. <laughs> um, so he started becoming aware of how he was how he was perceived. Uh, and like his patterns, and he didn't like many of those. He wasn't liked. And he didn't like them either. Uh, and he started trying out new things. And those things sometimes worked, sometimes he overdid them and um, exaggerated them too much. And that's something we do when we start changing. So we try things, new things out, and we're kind of not skillful at it. And we just do too much of them or not enough, and we feel um, not equipped. So he goes through a phase doing that. And then he starts, you can see that he's becoming more comfortable with it. And some of the things are becoming more habitual. So he practices and he practices and then uh, he starts being more natural about it until he seems to do them in an authentic way. And that's when it works. So when he's kind of pretending to be these caring, paying attention to Rita, she sees through that and she doesn't like it. But when he's now not even trying, uh, she falls for him. So to me, that's kind of what how change works. And it's not a straight line. And there are several things that may sabotage the process in the in the in between. But um, yeah, yeah, one of the things that I noticed is in the arc of what he goes through as the days repeating, there's the sequence of days when he's initially inauthentically trying to seduce Rita and it doesn't work. And then that leads into his multiple suicide attempts, which also they don't get him out of the loop. 
And then that's when he turns the new leaf. And so there's a scene when he's explaining his predicament to Rita. And initially he's saying, I must be a god. I'm an immortal. And she thinks he's being sarcastic. Not the god, a god. (laughs) And as we get deeper into the scene, we find out, okay, he's not actually trying to do anything. He's not trying to use this to grandstand or to seduce or anything. He is simply curious at his situation. And the thought that came with that is the dawning of curiosity comes after you've hit the wall. And so much personal work comes not when somebody else tells us that we should do it or you see a list online or something like that, but when you've reached a point where you just have to have that moment of clarity, that conversation with yourself of like, what's going on? I can't keep going on like this. I don't get it. I don't want it to keep going on like this. Phil probably would not have changed at all if things had gone on the way they were. He was living in his ego pattern and that seemed to be doing the job just fine. He seemed pretty happy with who he was and he wasn't 100% happy with where his career was, but he had a belief that his career was on an upward trajectory. And then to add to that, personal work takes time and it can take the exhaustion of going around and around and around and saying, what am I doing? But it builds slowly and gradually. You know, you don't become a master pianist overnight. It takes years and years and years, but even though the day resets, he still remembers what happened in every previous day, and he still has acquired the skills that he learned the previous days. And it genuinely builds. But he doesn't grow any older, which is interesting. You know, I mean, you know, I hadn't thought about that until you just said that. So when we work with our clients, the kind of approach we take, the, you know, we call the awareness to action process, right? It's becoming aware of what habitual tendencies we're stuck in and recognizing that, um, you know, we need to change in some way, but we always meet resistance, right? We always run into something that feels like a death, right? Uh, whenever we start to, you know, give up one behavior and do something else. And, you know, Marie Jose was talking about how they feel, a change feels uncomfortable and unnatural. Uh, I like to use the, uh, the analogy of it's like wearing someone else's clothes, right? Uh, it's just, doesn't feel quite right and but we go through this process if we really want to change of rewriting our narratives right rewriting our understanding of how the world is and who we are and that's what I see this movie being at least once he got on track to start making change that he's you know request he's questioning his assumptions, and he's developing a new story about how the world is. That I can, uh, I, I can be, I can be happier by letting go of my own interests and, uh, you know, focusing on the interests of others, and receive the reward from that. Right, which is very much a fourish path. Okay, that uh, connection to point two. Also, one of the themes that came up when we talk about the uh, core qualities and accelerators. Um, the core quality of point four is individuality, right? Who am I versus the world around me and losing contact with that. And what is the um, path to growth? The accelerator is what we call disidentification, right? So it's letting go of these assumptions about myself, right? And he had all these assumptions. I'm the talent, right? I'm this person. I'm somebody, you know, that there's a network that wants me, right? And just kind of letting go and giving up on trying to hold on to this sense of identity and just becoming 
what naturally emerges from uh, who he fundamentally is. And that's the path of the four. You know, again, whether that character was a clear four or not, you know, I, I'm, you know I'm not convinced. Um, but I think the point TJ made earlier, this movie is really four-ish, right, in a lot of ways. Okay, So um, any other thoughts on this before we wrap up? Go ahead, Maria. Yes, yeah, so, so, so there's the fact that I think we discussed it earlier that he was okay the way he was before. Or, was, or seemed to think he was yeah, okay. That, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I agree, but later, when you realize that he did like Rita, but wasn't doing anything about it, you know? Um, so he was comfortable, but not as happy or flourishing as he could have. So this whole process gave him an opportunity to expand um, the way in which he accomplished um, what he wanted. And when you were saying that at the beginning, when he got kind of on track, but it's, it's probably important to mention that when you start becoming aware and changing, you might need to try things that don't work and, and test it. You know, you will not always get it right. And that might be an obstacle for change to say, okay, I'm trying this, I'm changing, it's difficult and it's not working. Well, maybe that's, you need to um, look somewhere else and find something else to try uh, and another way to rewrite your story um, until it feels authentic and it allows me to fulfill my need to feel, in this case, unique, like feel. And we always tell people that change is not a linear process. It's like a spiral, right? That you go around and you end up back at the same place, but you end up at a higher level perhaps, right? Or from a different perspective. So it's a, you know, the hero's journey always ends up where it starts. Okay. But you're different at that point. And, you know, so, and, and, and this is what it was with him, you know, you know that, uh, um, that there was this ongoing process, this reiteration from one day to the next of, of who he was and who he was becoming. Okay. So, uh, final thoughts on the characters. Oh, we didn't get to do the question. Would this movie have been better or worse if he was a one, four, or eight? Um, so we're not quite sure, you know, what he was. Uh, T.J. Dahl, if this character uh, was a clear four, would you see any differences in the movie? If he was like a textbook four, I can imagine he would probably, maybe he did, we just didn't see it, uh, read every book available in the town library and bookstores, and he would probably learn a whole lot more instruments and become proficient at a whole lot of other creative disciplines on his way to his eventual realization. Great. Um, if he was a one, since we have two ones here, TJ, Maria, Jose, how would this character have been different? How would this movie have been different if he was a one? Well, I, I'll just speak for myself. I think that if uh, picturing how, what would my growth path look like if I was trapped in that same day? And it would probably be something along the lines of, uh, you know, if we think about striving to feel perfect, uh, okay, I'm going to take this day and I'm going to make it perfect. I'm going to solve every problem in this town. I'm going to fix every wrong. I'm going to, I'm going to write every wrong. And the growth path would probably be something like learning to let go of control. Actually, you don't have control over, over everything. You can't make everything perfect and learning to let go of that. You know, it's interesting because there was a, 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 a 
there were some scene, there were some things in the script that didn't make it into the movie, and it had to do with um, you know. Uh, solving problems like you're talking about, right? Keeping people safe. Like uh, he he was going to put up a roadblock to block the truck that brought in the seafood that the guy in the restaurant choked on, right? And so therefore he couldn't order the seafood and so forth. So so there was this, you know, undercurrent of fixing the world, TJ. Uh, Maria Jose, any uh, other thoughts? I hope that if I was in that position, I would very quickly start trying to have more fun you know that that was my journey we'll have fun after we fix everything (laughs) yeah well you know i've realized that the less i care the more i enjoy so it's (laughs) yeah yeah and if the character was an eight um i gotta say the decadence phase of uh, his experience would have been a whole lot longer and a whole lot more extreme uh you know because uh, if there were no consequences and uh, uh you know so forth the 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 line from uh, dostoevsky came to mind that uh, if there were no god there would be no limits or something to that effect um you know uh, <laughs> uh if it was an eight there'd have been a whole lot more shenanigans and uh, and <laughs> roused about uh, during the movie i think but uh all right, great. So, um, okay, so this draws us to a close. Maria Jose, thank you so much for uh, joining us. I do want to um, finish with a quote from the myth of Sisyphus um, that kind of wraps, uh, captures the theme of the movie uh, very nicely, I think, in the uh, resolution. Uh, the universe henceforth without a master seems to him neither sterile nor futile. The struggle itself towards the heights is enough to fill a man's heart. One must imagine Sisyphus happy. So one must imagine Phil Connor happy, and this happiness, this Sisyphean happiness through the lens of Camus, I think is what released Phil Connor from the endless uh, recurrence or the eternal recurrence. So a lesson there for all of us. Okay, folks, Mario Jose, thanks again. TJ and TJ, great stuff, and we will see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Enneagram in a Movie podcast. Be sure to join us for the next exciting episode. In the meantime, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe, and join us on social media.